This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5. I will be reading the entire chapter. It's a relatively short chapter, only 12 verses. 1 Samuel chapter 5. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early in the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we see in your word today the futility of idols, the futility of worshiping false gods and false things. I pray that as we consider your word this morning, that you would reveal to us anything false in our lives that we may worship, that as we are surrounded by idolatry and it presses in on us, that we would remain faithful to you. And most of all, that we would know the hope and salvation that only comes through you, our true God, and through your Son, 
our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week, we heard the account of Israel at the point of Ichabod. We saw a child at the end of chapter 4 who was born by that name, and that was a sign. It essentially summed up where Israel was at that point. Is Ichabod means that the glory has departed. And in Israel, the glory of God by that point had departed. It was not that God surrendered his omnipresence, that he ceased to be there, but he had turned away from blessing and helping his people because they had rejected him long before. This brings about devastating consequences. We saw that Israel was defeated twice in battle with the Philistines. In the first campaign, they lost 4,000 soldiers. Then they tried to make a superstitious power play by bringing God's Ark down, thinking that having it there would help them. They basically tried to wield God's Ark as a good luck charm to try to bring them some blessing to defeat the Philistines. This, of course, failed miserably. Israel experienced an even greater defeat. 30,000 more soldiers died, and the Ark was captured and taken to the Philistines. And not only that... But the worthless, evil priests that Israel had, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed, along with their father, the high priest, Eli. So for Israel, this is rock bottom. It was the lowest of the low for this moment in their history. Now we're also now in a stretch in 1 Samuel, where Samuel himself, who in chapter 3 was appointed and confirmed as a prophet in Israel, disappears for a few chapters. He recedes into the background. He will come back later, but in the meantime, we have this interlude of sorts where God is working out judgment on those who are against him. It started last week with God's judgment on Israel, his own people, for their faithlessness and blasphemy and idolatry. And it continues now into chapter 5. See, just because God was not on Israel's side in the last battle in chapter 4, that does not mean that he is on the Philistines' side either. For the Philistines are an idolatrous people. They do not serve the true God, and this week they themselves face God's judgment. Now, unlike Israel's judgment, which was brought by the use of a human invader, brought by this army of the Philistines, God will, by himself, with the help of no human intermediaries, bring judgment on the Philistines in chapter 5. He does not have and does not need anyone in the land to act on his behalf. He will humble the Philistines by his own power and direct intervention. He does this because while the Philistines worship idols and do not acknowledge him, he is the one true God And so that means he is also the Philistines' God. He is the God of heaven and earth and all peoples in the earth. And we will see here the clash of the true and living God with the Philistines' false God and the continued rebellion of the Philistines even after. So we will look at this account today from chapter 5 in three points. First, we see that God displays his power in verses 1 through 5. Second, it is still a display of power, but more specifically, we see a plague 
in verses 6 through 9. And then third and finally, we see the Philistines responding with panic in verses 10 through 12. So those are our three points today. Power, a plague, and panic. So first, we will look at the show of power in verses 1 through 5. Now we see here that the Ark of God was taken to Ashdod. Now the Ark of God, it was essentially a box. It was a very ornate box. It was decorated according to God's command when they built it and built the tabernacle. It had a few objects in it. It had the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It had some manna from the desert, some other items significant to the life and the history of Israel and their worship of God. So this ark had been taken into battle and lost to the Philistines, and now the Philistines take it to this city of Ashdod. Ashdod was one of the principal cities of the Philistines. It was one of five regional capitals, essentially, major cities of the Philistines. Now remember from the previous chapter that when the ark of God had come into the camp of Israel, the Philistines were afraid. They remembered the tales of old of how Israel's God, or gods, they were a bit foggy on those details, but they remembered something of a God in Israel that struck the Egyptians with great plagues and brought them out from the Egyptians. But in their dire situation of the last chapter, the Philistines stayed and and fought. They rallied their troops lest they be enslaved. And they prevailed. They defeated Israel. And in their eyes, that meant they had also defeated Israel's God. However, we as the readers of this text know something that the Philistines did not. They did not defeat Israel's God. They defeated an Israel whose God was not with them, was not on their side. They defeated an Israel who had forsaken their God and turned to find that their God was not with them. Israel fought and fell alone. But the Philistines believe that they have won some victory, not just over the nation of Israel, but a victory over God. And this is displayed by what they do next in verse 2. They take the ark of God and put it in the temple of Dagon. Now, Dagon was the national god of the Philistines. There is various disputed accounts as to what exactly Dagon was supposed to be or what he was supposed to represent. Uh, the Hebrew root of his name, coupled with the Philistines' coastal location and seafaring history, uh, leads a lot to think that Dagon might have had something to do with fish, that he was a fish god. The Hebrew word for fish is doggy, a fact you find rather amusing when you study first-year Hebrew. A doggy is a fish. But leaving that aside, Dagon may have been a fish god. Others believe he may have been a god of grain, a god of fertility or crop production. Others think that he was a storm god. We don't know exactly for sure what they thought Dagon was or what they thought Dagon could do, but we do know that he was their national god and that he was very prominent. In fact, archaeologists have found temples and relics of Dagon, not only in the land of of the Philistines, but in other nations to the north and east. So all this to say, as false gods and false idols of that time went, Dagon was a major one. He was a big deal. 
So the Philistines bring the Ark of God into Dagon's temple. It's a highly symbolic act. What the Philistines are doing here is declaring that their God, Dagon, is greater than the God of Israel. Their God has defeated him, and so the allegedly defeated God's Ark is going to be stored in Dagon's temple as something of a trophy. It's a spectacle. Look at how weak and puny Israel's God is. He could not deliver his people, and so now his Ark is nothing more than a footstool for our Dagon. But I cannot help when I read this account and see how the Philistines are treating God and his ark, how to think about how God is talked about and thought about and regarded in our day. We live in a time where openly mocking God and demeaning him and claiming to have won victory over him is not only permissible and acceptable, but is normal and celebrated. People not only commit heinous sins, but celebrate them and demand that they be celebrated. Last year, when Heidi and I were still in Alaska, we went with some friends to do street evangelism at what calls itself the Women's March. It's misnamed because it's really a march for demanding the right to kill children in the womb, male and female alike. Now, it is also, for some reason, an event that is attended and supported and promoted by the LGBT community, even though certain elements of them deny that women are a thing or that women have any particular unique existence. But leaving that aside, at this rally, there were hundreds of people gathered to applaud and chant for the right to mock and deride and belittle God and to cast aside his law and do what is evil in God's sight. In fact, when they found out who we were and what we were there to do, we got yelled at, cursed at, called every name in the book just for being there to talk to them about the gospel so that they might escape God's wrath. That is what the world thinks of our God. But listen... God will be nobody's footstool. He will not share his glory with Dagon or whatever other gods of our supposedly secular world, the spirit of our age, or of any other age. And what we see here in 1 Samuel 5 is one of the more unlikely and yet profound displays of God's power and victory in the Bible. They set up the Ark of God in the Temple of Dagon. It spends its first night there. But then the Philistines awake to a surprise. The statue of Dagon has fallen over. Now remember, this is the statue of the national god in one of the prominent national cities. So this wouldn't be some small statue, some poorly made, pieced together statue. It would have been something large and elaborate. Think of one of the largest statues you've ever seen. Maybe you've been to Washington, D.C. You've seen all the memorials there. Maybe you've been to the Lincoln Memorial, and I'm not saying that's an idol, but imagine a statue of that size and prominence, like the one there in the Lincoln Memorial, showing up one morning, and it's been dumped over. It's not the kind of thing that just happens. Those things don't tip over on their own. But in the Temple of Dagon... That morning after the first night, the Ark of God was there. There Dagon was, knocked over. 
Now also remember that as the national god, Dagon would probably be regarded as the Philistines' most powerful god. He can't even keep himself from falling over. And once he falls over, he cannot stand himself back up. As we see at the end of verse 3, the priests have to come in and stand Dagon's statue back up. Dagon has no power to do that on his own. Some god he was. But with Dagon stood back up in his place, another night passes. We see that the next day, after they had to stand up their weak and dead and useless god, he fell over again. And this time his head and his hands were removed. Now it is not mere chance that the statue falls again, or that these parts are removed. It's packed with significance. Uh, One such significance would be that in that day, heads were trophies of war. When a battle was won, the triumphing army would often collect the heads of the fallen to provide accurate counts of how many had died. Or the heads of defeated kings would be paraded about to show how weak and helpless the king was and how strong the conquering king was. So, by removing Dagon's head, God has reversed the Philistines' intentions. They sought to make God's Ark a war trophy, but God has made Dagon a war trophy, removing his head for all to see. Not only that, but the head is also where the ears and the eyes and the mouth are. So a Dagon without his head... Not that he could anyway, but now it is making a public spectacle of the fact that Dagon cannot see, Dagon cannot hear, and Dagon cannot speak. And then we also see the removal of Dagon's hands. Hands represent the power to do anything. So not only is Dagon blind, deaf, and mute, he can't do anything. He is utterly powerless and defeated. God has triumphed over Dagon purely by his own power. It wasn't like there was any of God's people there in Philistia that could have gone into the temple and pushed Dagon over. There was none of them there. God did this himself. No one had to promote God's cause or speak for him, and it wasn't needed. Because God is sovereign over all things in all places and all people forever and ever. If God wants to humble Dagon in his own temple, he can and he will And he did. And if he wants to humble those who mock God in this day, in this time, he can and he will. But finally and sadly, we see the obstinance and the ignorance of the Philistines and how they respond. We see how stubborn they are. Their God has been humiliated and defeated in his own house. How do the Philistines respond? We see the answer in verse 5. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So what does that mean? Rather than recognize that Dagon was defeated and that the power of a true God was in their midst, they treat the place where Dagon was broken into pieces as something holy and sacred because Dagon touched them. Talk about missing the point. God has shown himself to be true. He has shown himself to be powerful over this idol. He has broken the idol into pieces and embarrassed him. But the Philistines do not believe. 
Instead, they persist in their idolatry to Dagon, according to the author of this book. Even to this day, even after all the other events of this book were closed, even the strongest of evidences of God's power and glory can be denied by unregenerate hearts and minds. Nothing can cause the rebel sinner to believe except the miraculous intervention of God's Holy Spirit to remove the heart of stone and create a heart of flesh. Even watching one's idol die at God's hand is not enough, apart from God opening one's eyes. But the fall of Dagon, this display of God's power, is not the only action he takes against the Philistines. We see in our second point today, the outbreak of a plague. Remember from last time that the Philistines knew these great things that God had done against the Egyptians when the Israelites were brought out. So the Philistines should have known that this was not a God to be trifled with. But then we also see in verses 6 through 9, plagues breaking out among the Philistines. It begins in Ashdod, where the ark was in the temple of Dagon. In verse 6, we see that the people of Ashdod and the surrounding areas break out in tumors. We don't know specifically the condition, but it looks like it was painful, and in many cases it was deadly. It was also ugly. Tumors imply it's some kind of boil, some kind of swelling, something you wouldn't want to look at. So this is causing a great deal of illness and suffering among the people of the region. But then in verse 7, we see that the people recognize, they know that it is the God of Israel who has brought this plague and brought the fall of Dagon. So how do they respond? They say, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. They are right in that God's hand is against them. God has brought these things because they have despised his glory and treated his ark as a trophy to one of their false idols. They are blaspheming God by doing this. It's also worth noting that they acknowledge that the God of Israel has a hand, given that he has just broken off their God's hands. God, who does not need human agents to intervene for him, is carrying out his judgment on the Philistines by himself for their idolatry and rebellion. Even as the armies of those who were supposed to be God's people have fallen in battle, God is defeating the Philistines just by himself with no outside help. Not only is he defeating them, but he is causing them to acknowledge his power. They now know that the God of Israel was truly powerful over them and over their Dagon. But that is not enough to turn them from their idolatry. When Dagon fell, they stood him back up and they went on their way. But there is the problem of this plague. The lords of the Philistines, their leaders, probably the leaders of these five regional cities, they gather together to decide what to do next. Well, their solution is just send the ark to another town, send it to Gath. Now, Gath is probably best known for being the hometown of a certain Philistine warrior who comes later named Goliath. They think that perhaps moving the ark to Gath will bring a solution to this problem. No, not turning away from or destroying what's left of Dagon, not 
repenting of their idolatry and serving the living God who has shown His power in their presence. No, we don't want that God. Just get Him out of here. And again, I'm reminded of the rebellion against God that we often see now. How often do we see disasters, societal afflictions, catastrophes, problems that even come from God's hand, but to suggest that God is involved or suggest that God is warning people to repent and turn to Him is mocked and derided. You can't say that or you'll get canceled. And the people just continue in their rebellion. In just the last century, we've had world wars and other wars, outbreaks of disease, terrorism, corruption, economic catastrophes, all manner of calamity, and yet the Western world just continues to barrel towards the cliff. Get God away from us. Keep Him out of our lives. Keep Him out of our choices. Keep Him out of our bodies. Keep Him out of our politics. Keep Him away from our kids. Get God away from us. Give us Dagon. Give us our false gods. Stand them back up. Let us just go back to how we were before. In Israel, in chapter 4, we saw the rebellion of a people who by their wickedness had seen the glory of the Lord depart. But now here we see another tragedy. We see that the glory of God has come into the Philistines' midst and all they want Him to do is leave. See, Dagon can't save, but he's safe. He represents the status quo, keeping things the way they are, normalcy, stability, even if it's on a march to eternal judgment. A similar scene played out in the life and ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee into a Gentile territory, just as Philistia was a Gentile territory. And that was where Jesus met a man with a demon. In fact, he had many demons. They called the demons together called themselves legion because they were many. Well, Jesus had mercy on this man and cast the demons out of him into a herd of pigs who then run off the cliff to their death in the sea. The power of God has come to these people. Salvation has come. Even this man who Jesus cast the demons out becomes a proclaimer of Christ. But how do the people respond? The answer is in Mark 5, 16 and 17. It says, And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Yes, we know Jesus has come. We know he has displayed his power, but we don't want him. Get him out of here. Our world sees Dagon. They may not call it Dagon, but they see their idols. They see their false powerless gods knocked down over and over again. And all they want to do is stand them back up and send the true God away. And so, the Philistines of Ashdod send the ark away to Gath. And this leads us to our third and final point. We have seen God's power, we have seen a plague, and then finally we see a panic in verses 9 through 12. The ark goes to Gath. 
But this non-solution of moving the Ark to Gath produces the same results there as it did in Ashdod. We see this same outbreak of tumors. We, see the, we also see the hand of the Lord in causing a great panic among the people. They are afraid. They realize that the power of God is against them, that they are suffering because of His presence. They are terrified because they are dying, and the rest believe that they will die. But again in Gath, this does not produce repentance from idolatry or worship of the true God. It just produces more fear and terror and a desire once again to send God away. And so that's what they do. In verse 10, with Ashdod and Gath having suffered these plagues and panic because of the ark, the ark is sent to yet another of the prominent Philistine cities, Ekron which again, does not do anything to solve the problem. It just produces a similar outbreak of disease and fear. In verse 10, Ekron actually says this out loud. They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. Now, while the Philistines had in the previous chapter had a military victory over Israel, any rejoicing and gloating, that might have been produced by this has been replaced with fear and terror. God doesn't need his people to defeat the Philistines or judge them for their idolatry and blasphemy. He is more than able to do this himself. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and of all the rulers of man and of sickness and even of our fears. And just as God struck the Egyptians to deliver his people in Exodus, He by his own hand strikes the Philistines and defeats them without a word or without a single prophet or soldier to take up a word or a weapon on his behalf. God can and will vindicate his own name. Now realizing their dire situation, the Philistine leaders assemble again in verse 11 and they decide once again not to cast down their idols not to repent and seek to serve this true and living and powerful God, but again, to send him away. Let him go back to his place. Let him go back where he came from. Let us have powerless day gone. Just let things go back to how they were. Friends, this is a tragedy. God has come into their midst. And yes, he has done so with a heavy hand. He is rightly and justly judging their sins and idolatries and blasphemies. But all the Philistines want to do, and all they will do, is send God away. They're not going to heed these temporal judgments as warnings of a still greater judgment to come. Again, Dagon can't save, but he's safe. He doesn't demand exclusive worship and devotion that the true God does. The Philistines were under the heavy hand of God. They were cursed by God because of their sin. But this is not merely a physical problem. It is a spiritual problem. And it is not merely a Philistine problem. It is a human problem. It's not only that Their idols fell and that they broke out in illness and some of them died physically. But like all of fallen and sinful mankind, they were condemned by their sin against a holy and righteous God. They were under His wrath. 
We may not see these kinds of physical curses manifest in this way in our day, but that spiritual curse remains. All who are born in Adam are under the curse of sin and are enemies of God. And this sin has a penalty and a price, Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages of sin is death. Not only a physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. The very punishment of God for all eternity. So today we have seen this account of God's power, this plague, and the Philistines' panic. And we, like the Philistine council, the leaders that gathered in those days, we have to ask ourselves, what should we do? What can be done? Is the solution to this not merely Philistine, but problem of the entire human race of sin and rebellion against God and death, is the solution to send God away to flee from his presence? We cannot flee from his presence. He always knows. He always finds us. He always wins. But there is another way. And friends, I have good news for you today. The God who rightly and justly levied the curse against sin has also made the way of deliverance through his son, Jesus Christ. Though we were lost, blind, deaf, just as weak and pitiful and hopeless as the broken statue of Dagon. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered into creation, lived a life of perfect righteousness without sin, suffered the penalty and the curse due for our sin, died a brutal and gruesome and unjust death, but then was raised from the dead on the third day. God accepted Christ's sacrifice for sin. And now Christ has ascended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for his people. The gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life. That's the rest of Romans 6.23. I read you the first part, but the second part is, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that gift is offered to you this day. If you come here today realizing that you have been worshiping your own Dagon and now find it lying in pieces, broken on the floor, know that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like you. Now this is not to say that the road of following Jesus is easy. You may find yourself drawing the criticism and the hatred of the present world, being rejected, being an outcast. Following Jesus may not be safe, but Jesus is the only one who can save. Call on his name, repent of your sins, and believe in this gospel unto everlasting life. Life that the calamities of this world cannot take away. But if you're here today as a Christian, living in a world surrounded by those who would rather worship Dagon or whatever false idol they have contrived, you might be feeling defeated and discouraged. Take heart. Christ is for you. Christ will deliver you into his kingdom. Do not despair at the chaos and confusion around you. Because just as he did among the Philistines, God will vindicate his own name and show his power and his own glory, even if no one around will or can stand for him. 
but also know that around you there is a dead and dying world, one that worships these idols and faces the hand of God's judgment. Only Jesus Christ can save them. And so may we all be salt and light to those around us and take the message of Christ to a lost and dying world. May we all be people who will not want to send God away, but will remain with him and trust him and serve him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word you've given us. We thank you that uh, even though it does through difficult and hard truths, it shows us your power. It shows us your rule over all things. And even in this rather dark and bleak picture of judgment being poured out, we see the hope for mercy in Jesus Christ to turn away the curse of those who have rebelled against you, but who repent and fly to Christ for salvation. I pray that we would all believe this gospel this day, that by your Holy Spirit we would be motivated to love you and serve you and take the message of Christ to the lost and dying world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.